Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. We recently explored the making of the Fort King Road, which connected Fort King in the north to Fort Brooke at Tampa Bay. In this episode, we look at the terminus point, Fort Brooke. Why did the Army select that location in Tampa Bay? What was its purpose for building Fort Brooke? How important was the fort to the conduct of the Second Seminole War? Lastly, what remains of the fort today, and what does it tell us about life at Tampa Bay in the 1830s? With us to address these questions is Dr. Robert J. Austin from Cultural Resources Consulting. As part of a team of archaeologists and anthropologists in the 1980s, Dr. Austin excavated Fort Brooks' first cemetery while working for then Piper Archaeology, now Janus Research, from St. Petersburg. He is an expert on gunflints and barrel wells of that era. In addition to his work at Fort Brook, Dr. Austin has directed over 700 cultural resource projects, authored over 500 technical reports, published over 40 professional papers, book chapters, and monographs, and he's presented his research at numerous professional meetings and public forums. Dr. Austin is past president of the Florida Anthropological Society and is a past editor of that organization's journal, The Florida Anthropologist. He is past president of the Florida Archaeological Council and also served as vice president of that organization. He's recipient of numerous awards, grants, and fellowships since earning his doctorate in anthropology at the University of Florida. A professional for 40 years, Dr. Austin knows his way around the Byzantine labyrinth of federal, state, and local laws and regulations focused on cultural resource heritage. These include Section 106 of the National Historic Preservation Act, the Archaeological Resource Protection Act, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, and the National Environmental Policy Act, as well as various chapters of Florida statutes. Dr. Austin will briefly explain what all of these are about and how they apply. Dr. Bob Austin. Welcome to the Seminole Wars. Thanks for having me. We often hear that the site of Fort Brooke was an ideal location, but James Covington has written that there were more suitable sites. However, the land that became Fort Brooke had already been cleared and a house and a wharf erected. What's the story behind this? There was an earlier homestead there when military arrived in 1824, and so the land had already been cleared, and it was a good spot. The reason that there was a homestead there was because it's high ground right at the confluence of Hillsborough Bay, the Hillsborough River, and so it was a great spot for a site anyway and a fort location. And as it turned out, the fort was a major depot, especially during the Second Seminole War. So being there right on the bay, access to the river, all the natural resources, high ground. There was also a spring, I think a couple springs. And then having already been partially cleared, made it really attractive. In our imaginations, a fort is four walls. Fort Brook was not like this, and it extended further from where its walls were. What was this cantonment Fort Brook? containment area, the reservation, it was 168. But then the downtown Tampa area, everything south of Whiting Street, was the actual containment area. And within that, there was a fortification, which really was, wasn't even four walls. It was a kind of triangular shape open to the bay. So the walls faced the uplands, the interior. The vast majority of that in downtown Tampa now, the containment area, consisted of officers' quarters, barracks, food halls, sutter stores, two cemeteries 
cemetery. There was a huge Native American platform mound down there that was a landmark. All kinds of outbuildings, places for the horses, all of that kind of stuff. So what's called Fort Brook is really this massive cantonment area that was there until 1882 when the military decommissioned the fort and opened it up to uh, private sale. A major depot for flying soldiers in Florida. Why did they need to put a fort? They were at peace with the Seminole. First Seminole War happened mostly up in the Panhandle area, but there were issues with the Seminoles, and so they decided they needed a, a fort on the Florida Peninsula. They established a fort and this large area, and I believe initially there was really only maybe two or 300 soldiers there until 1835 when the Second Seminole War started with the Dade Massacre, and then they've started bringing in thousands of soldiers. I think the estimate is like like 4,800 soldiers were there at its peak during the Second Seminole War. So they had this major area that was kind of like Central Command is today in the Tampa Bay, McDill. Fort Brooke was that Central Command for the peninsula and South Florida during the Seminole War. How was the fort supplied? They received most of their supplies through New Orleans. And one of the things that I've been interested in is how they were supplied and who did the supplying. My main interest is gunflints, but it also has to do with all kinds of military hardware, as well as where did they get all the food stuff? Where did they get all the plates and dishes? Where did all that kind of stuff come from? All of that stuff, or the vast majority of it, came through New Orleans. Now, from what I have been able to uncover through looking at historic documents, documents and contracts and things like that is that there were supply issues. I don't know that there was a ma- major supply problem. Uh, they certainly seemed to have enough ammunition and flints and rifles. A lot of the soldiers were not just U.S. soldiers. There were also militias that were there, and a lot of those people applied their own firearms. But things like musket balls and gun flints were being supplied by the military, and those were all done through contract. The military didn't really directly import those kinds of things. Of course, gunflints came from Europe, primarily France. They manufactured musket balls in the United States and some of the armory. Gunpowder they manufactured in the United States. I don't know that there was a huge issue in terms of the supply of armament. There were probably issues with food, things like that. And one of the things that we know is that they also supplemented a lot of the food that came into Fort Brook with resources that were right there, a lot of oysters, fishing, hunting. So those kinds of things were supplemented by local resources. Yeah, they did have some gardens there. That was another reason that the clearing of that area was important. It's because they had some pretty substantial gardens there as well. In the military records, it's mostly referred to as Fort Brook. And when we write about it, we always talk about it as Fort Brook. As you noted, the actual fortification is pretty small. And so... It was officially, and I think in some of the records, it's officially named Cantonment Brook, but in correspondence, it's usually referred to as Fort Brook, and certainly everybody who's written about it refers to it as Fort Brook. It was named after George Mercer Brook. Could soldiers make gunpowder at the fort? I don't think they made gunpowder there, but there's evidence that the soldiers made their own musket balls sometimes. Archaeologically, we found lead sprue from when they were with the waste of uh, making lead musket balls. We'd find musket balls with the little lead sprue collectors have found fragments of wooden mold for musket balls. Many of the soldiers had their own kits to make their own musket balls. Gunflint were were all imported, although there's a lot of evidence that they would resharpen and recycle their gunflints as much as they possibly could. How many firings was a typical gunflint 
good for. If you have a brand new flint and put in your gun, the military guidelines indicate that you should be able to get 20 good fires from each individual gun flint. Now, once that happens, still it'll still fire, but spark is not nearly as good, and so your ability to fire your musket is reduced. In order to extend the use life of the gun flints, they sometimes turn the flint over and then strike it from the opposite surface or even rotate in the rifle so that they would use a different edge that hadn't been worn as much. And then they would also recycle used gun flints and use them for strike a light for making fires and stuff. So they would try to use up the gun flint as much as possible in a variety of different ways because those need to be in good working condition if you're in a firefight, obviously. But then even after that, they would try to use those for their strike lights and those types of things. Florida was notoriously unhealthy in that time. How did Fort Brooke stack up? From what I understand from reading some of the history materials, documentary history, early on when they first started the fort, they really didn't have too much of a problem with disease or ill health. That's when there were only a few hundred soldiers there. But after the start of the Second Seminole War, apparently with the influx of so many soldiers in and out of the cantonment, as well as there were a number of friendly Indians, probably Seminole, who came to the fort and camped out outside the fort, but they also came into the fort to trade at the trading post there and everything. There was an awful lot of people there, more possibilities for disease vectors. Even though it was a nice high spot, it's still Florida and it's still muggy, damp, lots of mosquitoes. The health situation at the fort apparently during that period was much more dire than during the earlier period. I've read accounts not only of the poor health of some of the soldiers there, but some of the food supplies being in pretty poor condition condition, damp, having sex in them, things like that. So even if they were being supplied with things like flour, salt, and things like that, storing that kind of stuff in a humid environment with no refrigeration and things of that sort, you're going to get insect and mold. And so that was also a problem there that probably was exacerbated by the fact that there were just so many people there and so much stuff and this Florida humid climate. What about the problems with sanitation? It was a fort. <laughs> And they had outhouse and privies, and it probably wasn't that great, particularly, again, when there were so many soldiers there. There's all kinds of letters. There will be some letters that have been published by soldiers talking about how bad the food was, poor latrine conditions. Of course, soldiers complain about everything no matter what anyway, but... Again, in excavating out there, there were privies pretty much all over the place. Those were fairly common. And I know one of the excavations that I was involved in in the 80s, about where the parking garage is next to Amelie Arena, we found a large number of trash pits and privy pits. We think that we were working in an area where the soldiers camped and had their tent marquees during the Second Seminole War. And it was loaded with all kinds out there. So there must have been a very large number of soldiers in a very compact base. Despite the fact that the containment area was fairly large, acreage, they seemed to have concentrated most of the soldiers in their living areas anyway in a comparatively small. So I don't imagine the conditions were ideal. Among the structures you found, was there a brig or a jail? I don't remember seeing anything on maps. There could be something on there that indicates a brig or, but I don't remember anything specifically about that. But all those soldiers there, there had to be disciplinary problem and that there would have been some way of dealing with that. At Fort Brook or near Fort Brook, there were traders? 
There was a couple Sutter stores there and were private, as I understand it, were private contractors on the Potomac area and the soldiers could go in there and buy goods from them. And one of the last projects I did out there was located quite near one of the later Sutter stores from the 1850s. That's one of the interesting things that I think from the archaeological record is that the goods that were out there and, well, for example, we excavated a barrel well that was located very near the Sutter store and it was full of some pretty expensive, what would have been expensive, table wine bottles that were from France, by again, by way of New Orleans. And common soldiers, obviously, were not privy to that kind of stuff. So we assumed that those were related to officers. Goods were disposed of in this abandoned barrel well. And some of the ceramics that are found out there, there's the typical feather edge, blue and green feather edge, pearl well plate. And those are very, very common on almost all Seminole War forts. But there's also some much more expensive ceramics, again, probably restricted to officers. And then soldiers, they did eat in a mess hall type of situation, probably had those less expensive pearl wear plates, but if they were eating out in their tents and stuff, we found all kinds of tin plates and tin cups and things like that, uh, iron, fork, and knives that would have been probably part of their pack carried with them into battle. You mentioned a barrel well. What is that? A barrel well is meant to intercept the groundwater table. It doesn't really go down to like the Florida Knackle, which a deep injection, you know, deep well would do. That. So it wasn't under artesian pressure. But usually they would do two barrels, one on top of the other. And then, of course, the bottom would be busted out of them, but the sides were there. And they would dig down to the water table, insert uh, the barrels one on top of the other, and then put clean sand in the bottom barrel, or at least half of the bottom barrel. Then the water through that clean sand, which would tend to filter out dirt and other kinds of stuff, and then they would use that water, presumably for drinking, was a at least one, and I think two, deep wells at the periphery or just outside the contonement area that they could have got artesian water from would have been definitely used for drinking. But the barrel wells were, again, pretty much all over the place out there and was used for probably bathing, cooking, washing, and it could have been used for drinking water. Probably would have had a lot of sulfur in it, maybe iron, but those were pretty common. The one that we excavated was a single barrel well, but it had clean sand in the bottom and you could see where the water level fluctuated within the white filter sand. And then when they were abandoned, they just used them for throwing away their refuse. You found a number of artifacts in the bottom of the water well. These weren't deposited while they were still drinking from it. <laughs> yeah, no, that would happen. For whatever reason, they decided not that, that well anymore. It may be that they put a new one in somewhere, or for whatever reason, they decided to abandon that. The one that we excavated a few, uh, probably in the early 2000s, had datable artifacts from the 1850s. There were only a couple artifacts that dated to the Second Summer War period, and there wasn't very much. Of course, there's always a little bit of modern stuff in the top of it because later development kind of mixes in more late 19th and early 20th century stuff. But once you got down into the real nitty-gritty of the well, it was mostly from the 1850s. So that well must have been abandoned probably no later than 1860 or something like that because it had quite a few 1850s-era artifacts. Of course, also by that time, even during the Third Seminole War, it was not very well manned. There was an uptick during the Third Seminole War, but nowhere near what it was like during the Second Seminole War, only a few hundred soldiers. And really after that, they just kept a small group of people out there to maintain the contumacy area, and that was it. Probably less than 50 people from the uh, Civil War on until it was decommissioned. The Seminoles had a reservation, but they came to the Fort Brooke Contonement area. 
Why was that? Well, they were interested in trading. They traded with the military. In fact, they wanted to have a trading post near any fort that was established anywhere near where they were at because they wanted to act to European goods. And so early on, there was a lot of Seminoles who came to the fort to trade at the trading post and the Sutter stores. During the Second Seminole War, there were called friendly Indians who came to the fort for protection, who did not want to be involved in fighting with the military and were willing to negotiate. The number of those not really Really well known, although the, there must have been a fair number of them because the first Fort Brooks Cemetery, which was excavated in 1980, of about 126 remains that were taken out of that cemetery before they built the old Fort Brooks uh, parking garage. I think there was 40, 45, something like that, that were identified as Native American and a couple that were identified as African American. There were probably another 40 or so that couldn't be identified, and then the rest were assumed to be soldiers. So that's a fair fairly high number for a military cemetery of Native Americans. During that period, there must have been quite a bit of Seminole occupation around the fort. And then when they died, they were buried in the military cemetery. How important was Fort Brook to carrying out the overall Seminole removal policy? It was a major supply depot for Central and South Florida. It was a major source of soldiers for the various campaigns. I know that there was a lot of supplies that came into North Florida through Jacksonville and probably also through Pensacola. But for Central and South Florida, which... Of course, Central Florida particularly, and to a certain extent, South Florida, although not so much down in the Everglades, but around Lake Okeechobee and the Kissimmee River. All those soldiers and supplies pretty much came in through Fort Brook, and the major campaigns were manned by soldiers from Fort Brook. So I think it was pretty important component of the whole, particularly the Second Seminole War campaign. When did they finally shut the fort down? In 1882. Immediately after that, it was open to private sale. And so during the late 19th century, there were a lot of industrial, commercial activities going down there. You see old pictures of lots of railroad cars in that area, and it was a major port. So a lot of dock and boats coming in to supply the burgeoning town of Tampa. And then in the early 1900s, there started to be buildings of some substantial size built down there, multi-story brick office buildings and things like that. So those buildings were still pretty much there up into the 1970s. And it was really in the late 70s and the 80s that the core of Tampa, what's called the Tampa Central Business District, really started to develop what we see today as downtown Tampa. You started to get more large office buildings and things of that sort. And that's really when I did most of my work down there was during the 80s and 90s when that development was going on. Early on, the early development of the fort property. Obviously, there was some superficial damage. All the old buildings that were there were from the fort were, were torn down. But archaeologically, most of the development was superficial or not too deep below the surface. And even the early brick buildings were not that. And I can give a really good example of the excavation in the parking garage area that I was talking about near Amelie. When we first went out there, the buildings had been torn down. There were some big brick buildings out there. They were torn down. But those buildings were built to where the footers were around the periphery of the buildings. That was there. But the flooring on the bottom, a concrete slab, they just laid chicken wire down on the ground surface, poured the concrete directly on the ground surface in the chicken wire. And then when that, that set, then they built the brick building on top. What were the conditions you found when you came out to do your archaeology? So when we went out there in 87, we had backhoe operator who just put his bucket on one of the slabs and just pried it up. And immediately under the slab, there was this probably three or four foot in diameter trash pit just 
sitting there right underneath. It was like that all over that. So that early development, although there was some you know, isolated bad disturbance, in many cases, it wasn't really too bad. Another good example is where the convention center is now. That area, pretty much the same thing. We went out there, did some heavy equipment scraping, and found a prehistoric cemetery, a shell midden, and stuff related to Fort Brook as well. Two things have really impacted the archaeology there. One has been modern development. Of course, these big buildings require deep foundation. They most of them have basements, so those pretty much take out everything. The other issue, and really probably in the 70s, is artifact collectors who have or did, I'm not sure it's as active as it used to be, but it was quite a problem for people. They would go out at night, find vacant lots, or even break into abandoned buildings and take sledgehammers and go through the concrete floor down into the undisturbed stuff below and look for artifacts of which they have found some pretty spectacular stuff. When I was working down there, I was able to see some of their collections, but it also did a lot of damage. So that's been unfortunate. And now there's probably very little left intact. I won't say there's nothing. There's probably always going to be something somewhere, but especially in the area that's being developed by Jeff Finnick, all the Water Street development. That was really probably the last largest area that hadn't been developed. It's also the area that the second cemetery was found several years ago during archaeological work out there and was excavated by archaeologists. One of the things that is positive out of all that is that in 1980, when the first cemetery was found during construction and the local firm Piper Archaeology was hired to excavate that first cemetery, the fact that it had been found during construction and excavation was required and it was a big excavation and it took a long time. The construction people were sitting around waiting for the archaeologists to get done and losing money. The city of Tampa passed an ordinance that required that when any archaeological work was being done in a CBD, which is essentially where Fort Brook was, that they had to have an archaeologist out there to monitor. And so when there was any ground disturbing activity, you had to have an archaeologist out there. And so important components of the fort were found as a result of that ordinance. That's why we were out there, the parking garage, that's why we were out there for the convention center. There was the fort hospital kitchen was found, an old creek that ran through the contaminated area and a cooling house was found. So what has been found out there archaeologically has been the direct result of that ordinance, which is still active and is one of the reasons why the work for the Water Street development was being done. They also used to have in the state of Florida a development of regional impact, which is a state permitting situation. And so the whole downtown CBD area was considered a downtown DRI, a downtown development of regional impact. And because of state laws, if you were working in that area and you had to have any kind of state permit than that all so there's been archaeology down in the result of these laws that were instigated in the 80s, although currently the potential for intact Fort Brook stuff is diminishing. There has been archaeology and there has been information obtained from that archaeology. So that's been the good part. The bad part is that there's probably not going to be anything left. And the other part, which I have to say, is that the city hasn't really done a very good job, frankly, in terms of interpreting or letting the public know what what Fort Brook was, where it was, what transpired there, how important it was downtown. There's a couple signs which are not particularly accurate, but other than that, there's not really a whole lot of interpretation downtown, which I think is a shame. What entity is preserving at least the memory of Fort Brook? The Tampa Bay History Center does have plays and stuff about Fort Brook. The town of Tampa was built up around and then over Fort Brook, so I think it's an important part of their history. How does the location of the archaeological remains jibe with what the various maps have stated? Or shown over the years for where buildings were located. 
That's a good question. There's a lot of maps. Unfortunately, it's only the later map that are tied into anything that exists today. There's a map, I think it was in the 1850s, by a surveyor, John Jack, who plotted out the early Tampa streets, including Whiting Street and some of the streets to the north of there. Whiting Street was the northern boundary of the Contomit area. And I believe that the outlines, at least, of Contomit area are on there in relationship to that. The hospital kitchen may be shown on that map. That's the first map that's got anything on it, even a scale, that enables you to tie in something about the fort to modern landmarks. The best map, the most complete map of what was out there is the 1838 map of the fort, which shows it at its peak of occupation. Buildings all over the place, tent marquees, everything that I talked about as being out there during the Second Seminole War, including the big platform mound, is shown on that map. Unfortunately, (laughs) that map, although it's correct in general in terms of relationships of one building to another, another. There's not really any scale on there, and there's not really any landmark that exists today on there to tie that map into anything. When did you encounter the map as an archaeologist? First time I worked at Fort Brooks in 1978, and I was at USF. I was an undergraduate, and it was my field school. And this map, which was on display at the Historical Society downtown Tampa, the graduate student who was involved in doing that project used that map to try and figure out where Fort was in relationship to the downtown area. And we excavated there and we did find a little bit, but mostly found the prehistoric gelmid. What the archaeologists pretty quickly figured out is that the shoreline had been extended with fill during the early 20th century. And putting the old map down on a modern map where the waterline is, not where the waterline was in 1838. This is back before GIS. Knowing that, we would try to just stretch the map out, you know, and try to match it up as best as we could with where we thought the old shoreline was. And as more archaeology was done out there, we had a better idea of that, but it was never very good. So what were some known points, at least? Hospital, kitchen, and the stream bed and the cooling house were found. That was a known point on the 1850s map, so that gave us something. And then the Jackson map, you know, also held, and the first cemetery, we were new that one. So we had those, but everything else was a little bit screwy. And it wasn't until a few years ago when another company, Cardno, was hired to work on the Water Street development. They took those maps and using GIS and the information that has accumulated over the years, they were able to do a much better job of georectifying where things are. And we never really knew exactly what cemetery was. There were a lot of get on, but we never really knew. They did a really good job of figuring out. They had three locations all pretty close to each other. When they went out there to work, they, they definitely found now that we know that, you know, the first cemetery, we know the hospital kitchen, a couple other things. It's a much better job of figuring out where individual structures were. The problem is, is that all those areas now are developed, so it's impossible really to excavate any of those. What is possible then? It may be possible to go back to earlier excavations, see what was being found, look at where those excavations were in light of these new maps, and retroactively, oh, okay, well, they were in the area where such and such was located. There is that advantage, but in terms of doing any new excavations, I think it's going to be difficult just because of the amount of development that's going on down there. Captain Fraser's redoubt, has it been found? Fraser's Redoubt was basically a triangle with two walls and a bastion or whatever it's called that they had there at the apex. 
that was open to the bay. It's never been found. We thought we were near it when we were working at the convention center, but there was never anything definitively found. And the other thing about that excavation is that the emphasis was on the prehistoric cemetery. We needed to get those human remains out. And so that was the main emphasis. If the emphasis had been on Fort Brooke, we might have approached that a little bit differently. But I'm reading some of the account, the redoubt on the outside had these huge big pits that were dug right outside the picket wall with pointed spikes in the bottom of them. So if they were attacked from the mainland, in addition to the pickets, they would have to cross the big open spiked <laughs> holes. Well, hell, if those were even filled in afterward, those kinds of features should show up. Even if you never found the post holes from the picket, you should be able to find those big pits and probably with some preserved wooden spikes in the bottom of them. But that's never happened. So I don't know if we were wrong about them in that area. If for whatever reason, they were not identified. What are the moral and ethical guidelines to removing remains, like from the cemetery that you were excavating? It has evolved. Prior 1980 excavation of the first cemetery, nobody really thought much about those kinds of questions unless they were Europeans. There's all kinds of laws governing what you can and cannot do in a marked cemetery. So in 1980 or, and before, it was pretty common for archaeologists to excavate human remains from Native American cemeteries and burial mounds and analyze them to their heart's content and get radiocarbon dates and, and then store all that stuff in museums and universities. From a moral, ethical standpoint, you always want to treat human remains with respect. And Native Americans would say that, well, that's not true because you've never treated Native American remains with respect if you take them and put them in boxes somewhere. And they have a point. They must have thought there'd be a mixed complement for remains in the graveyard. That being said, the excavators weren't anticipating so many seminal. Piper excavation at the Fort Brooks Cemetery, I don't think they anticipated that there would be so many seminal burials there. They anticipated that it was going to be a military cemetery, maybe a few Seminoles, but mostly sold. Right off the bat, you're dealing with European human remains. And the fact that they're military means that there would have been some contact with the army and be want us to do with these remains, etc. As it turned out, there were a significant number of Seminoles and there was a significant amount of Seminole material heard with the remains. At that time, there weren't any restrictions on doing analysis. So all that stuff was excavated. It was returned to the Piper Archaeology Labs in St. Petersburg. Human remains went to USF. Dr. Curtis Winker, who was a biological anthropologist there at the time, he studied the human remains. All that stuff got analyzed, written up, and arrangements were made to rebury the remains. How was it that the seminal remains were buried in Tampa rather than brought back to one of the reservations in southern Florida? Seminoles had acquired reservation land. The location of that land became a Seminole reservation. It is located on Interstate 4 across from the state fair in Tampa. The human remains and the artifacts were returned to the tribe, and the tribe reburied the remains out there. Even with some limitations, the archaeological excavation did provide some insights, at least. On that project, I would say yes that archaeology did get a lot of information, especially with human remains. There's all kinds of advanced terms of how skeletal remains can be analyzed. And so if those are reburied, you'll never get a chance to utilize those more refined techniques. But at least in that case, there were no restrictions on what could be done to the remains at that time. However, in 1987, as a result of some other issues I won't get into that had to do with prehistoric remains, 
there was an existing law that was amended to include Native American cemeteries and burial mounds within the unmarked human burial law. And it's interesting, there was an unmarked human burial law that made it a felony to disturb human remains, but it didn't apply to Native Americans. So that law was changed. And also the procedures that go on when unmarked human remains are found, archaeologists are required to contact the state archaeologist's office. And then the state archaeologists contact the Seminoles and the Miccosukee. Then there is consultation regarding what can and cannot be done with the human remains, where those human remains will be reinterred, and how. And so there was a period of time there where all these things were brand new and were being worked out. But today, and also in 1991, the federal law, you may have heard NAGPRA, Native American Grave Protection and Repatriation Act, that also has similar things, but it applies only to federal tribal lands or projects that are getting federal permits. The state law applies to state land and basically anything that's not federal or tribal. Today, both of those, there is much less that can be done with Native American human remains in terms of analysis and much more control over how those remains are treated during excavation, during analysis, and in terms of a reinterment. Much more control is exercised by the tribes now than was early. Is this a positive thing, a negative thing, or something in between? You can look at this in a couple of different ways from anthropological, ethical perspective, particularly in terms of Fort Brook, those are definitely their ancestors. Therefore, they have should have the right to dictate what is done with their ancestral remains, just like Euro-Americans would or African-Americans. And we're required to contact the state if we find Euro-American or African-American remains as well. And then also try to find descendants of those people if possible, and then coordinate with them about how to treat the remains. The other side of the coin is the scientific part of it, which there is loss to science about when those remains are reburied with no analysis or or very minimal analysis. Native Americans don't like to have destructive analysis. They really don't like to have any analysis at all. They want things to be reburied. So there's a lot lost there for the reasons I mentioned before. And then anything that's associated with the burial needs to be reinterred as well. Archaeologists of all stripes believe that their direct ancestors, that's appropriate. But I think the real issue comes when you're talking about pre-contact or even pre-seminal Native American remains in Florida. How ancestral are those Seminoles who are really of Creek ancestors? came into Florida in the early 1700s. And that's been a big debate over the years because you're dealing with human remains from a site that dates to 1000 BC. The Seminoles and the Miccosukee still want to have control over those. And some archaeologists don't feel that that's appropriate. Or if it is, then they should at least have an opportunity to do some study on them. And those are things that are constantly being negotiated and worked out between the tribes and between archaeologists and various agents. From the Fort Brook excavation, what makes an artifact find significant, if not also spectacular. There's few individual artifacts that are significant in and of themselves. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't some like that. The Rosetta Stone is in and of itself a significant individual artifact because contact was irrelevant to its importance. But most artifacts are mundane and it's their contact, how they're found, where they're found, and in relationship to other other things, other artifacts, structures, things like that, that really give them their significance or the whole assemblage of things, their significance in terms of trying to, to understand what went on on a particular site, what its history was, how it fits in with the history or prehistory of an area. Geologists like to say that a site's important because of the questions that it has the potential to answer. And that's just a fancy way of saying that if the artifacts and the 
ecofacts and the faunal remains and the features are there and they can help tell the story of that site and can place that site into historical context, then the site, the assemblage of all those together is significant. If it can't do that or if it's been disturbed to the extent that the relationships and the context has been destroyed, then the site is not significant anymore. The artifacts may still be cool and may have some value in terms of display value in a museum or something like that. But the site itself no longer has any context and therefore is not significant in that sense. At Fort Brook, then you get what's our spectacular artifact. A lot of people, when I tell them I'm an archaeologist and, oh, do we have archaeology in Florida? I mean, are, were there Indians here? I mean, what are we talking about, the Seminoles? I said, well, you know, there's probably 14, 15,000 year Native American history here in Florida. Oh, I didn't even know about that, you know, because we don't have pyramids. We don't have gold artifacts. We don't have all the spectacular things that show up on the History Channel or in books and Indiana Jones movies. But we have a lot of great stuff in and of itself. And so I think some of the things that have been found at Fort Brook that are interesting in and of themselves, even outside of their context, and this, this will seem kind of silly, but it, I always thought this was interesting, is that when we were working on the parking garage, we excavated a big pit feature, and in that feature was this little, oh, it couldn't have been more than about an inch and a half high. It was obviously some sort of little metal painter. We slipped it open, pulled it off. Inside was a little figurine, if I remember correctly. Uh, St. Joseph, and it's a very common religious icon that people carry about. To me, that was a really cool artifact. It was made out of white metal, which is basically just lead and other stuff. And I thought that was really cool because that personalized what we were excavating, which was just a trash pit, of course, with stuff from a number of different people threw stuff in there. But this belonged to probably a soldier and really personalized the whole experience out there for me. At the other end of the scale, and this was something that was actually found by a collector who was probably digging illegally but they called me to come down and look at it. It was a sub that they had found and completely excavated out in one night, a Peradian brick powder magazine. It was spectacular. And we photographed it, measured it, did all that kind of stuff and put it in our report. The only one that's ever been found out there, definitely the only brick powder magazine at Fort Brook. Of course, everything that was filled in, they chucked it all out. So we don't know exactly what was in it, even how old it is. So that's the downside of it. But from just really, really interesting feature, that's the other end of the spectrum. All kinds of holes plates and pots and gun parts. We found a bugle, all kinds of interesting things. What did you find that surprised you? From the fort, I wouldn't say anything that I was really, really surprised at. I was surprised to see the, the brick powder magazine, but of course it was a fort, so I wasn't surprised that there was a powder magazine there. From the preservation angle, sometimes you're surprised that something like that would have preserved intact. So there are those kinds that you come upon occasionally. But in terms of what was there related to fort, I can't say that I was surprised by any particular artifact or group of artifacts. It was what you would typically expect to find at a 19th century fort. You, know, so. you address this, but apparently there's a name for that in downtown Tampa called the Quad Block. The Quad Block site, first cemetery that I talked about that the Pipers excavated in 1980, it was called the Quad Block. That was a city designation for what they were going to be developing there. And that's where the old Fort Brook parking garage is located now. Archaeologists use a shorthand of Section 106. What is Section 106? Section 106 is part of the National Historic Preservation Act, which was passed in 1966. And the wording here is important. Take 
all federally take account of their act on cultural resources that are eligible or potentially eligible for the National Register of Historic Places. That's the law. Then what, how you implement the law is in a whole series of rules that have been passed, and those get quite specific. But one paragraph required any ground-disturbing project on federal land, tribal land, or any project that receives a federal permit. So if you're a private developer and you're going to impact a wetland that's protected by the federal freshwater, then you are subject to Section 106. What does that entail? First of all, you have to find out are there any either eligible or potentially eligible or listed National Register sites on the property. And then you have to determine if there are, what effect is this project going to have on them? And usually it's an adverse effect. <laughs> there wasn't any. There was Section 106, but not federal land and there was no federal permit. There was no nag. There was a survey done of the property, but because the buildings hadn't been taken down yet, there was very little area to do shovel testing, so they didn't find the cemetery. Then when the buildings came down and they started digging up the land, they started finding That's why the city said, oh, wait a minute, we need to do something so that the contractors don't get stuck in the middle of construction and have to shut down for three months. Tampa passed their ordinance, I think, in 1980, and then Florida Antiquities Act was actually passed in 1965, but wasn't really a very good law, amended in the 80s, and mirrored Section 106 in that it states that all state aides have to take account of their actions on eligible, potentially eligible sites. So now any state land or any project that gets a state permit has to have a survey done to see if there's any sites out there and what the effects will be. And then the Chapter 872, which is the burial law, was passed in late 80s, and that only related to human remains. And then NAGPRA was passed in 1991. Every county and most major municipalities like Tampa, St. Petersburg, Clearwater, St. Augustine, Miami, have their own local historic preservation ordinances, and those can be of varying degrees of effectiveness. Some are really poor, others are really strong. Most of those major municipalities and counties have them. So you have a series of different layers of cultural resource laws extending from the federal all the way down to the local level. And so during the 80s, 90s, and into the 2000s, that's where private sector archaeology really blossomed, because before that, archaeology was mostly done by universities and museums. And so it was only with the passage of these laws that there became a whole private industry of archaeologists and historic preservationists that did these projects for first the uh, private developers and then for government agencies because they have archaeology. They don't always have enough to do everything that they need to do. So uh, they hire private consultants to do their work too. So what's next for investigations into the Fort Brook site? I think what needs to be done now with Fort Brook, the major area that was left to be investigated is the Water Street development area. That's being developed as we speak. The cemetery excavation there was important and will add something to what we know about Brook. But I don't think there'll be any more really, really major discoveries like that out there simply because most of the fort area has been developed. But I do think what needs to be done now is to take the 30-some or 40 years of archaeology projects in downtown Tampa and pull them all together and also to look at some of these private collections that people have. And some of these people are very good about documenting where they found stuff. Not quite as good as detailed as an archaeologist would do, but at least which lot, which part of the lot that they found you know, and features and things like that. Pulling all that stuff together for the archaeology profession and the historical profession and then also possibly in something that is accessible to the public like a history of the fort that updates everything that the historians have found out 
and everything that the archaeologists have found out into one really nice volume that's got lots of pictures and maps and artifacts and stuff that the public can appreciate as well. And then also publicize better that aspect of Tampa's history. It might be a little bit more difficult because there wasn't really a fort per se with four walls and stuff. I remember Walt St. Louis and they have the old fort there, the picket outline on the city streets. There's a little straight line down the sidewalks and each corner is marked with a little plaque. And even if they did something like that, that outlined the boundaries or maybe where we decide certain buildings were or where the cemeteries were and things like that would be a great addition to the history of Tampa. And these would all be low-cost things that I think the city could and, and should. There's a lot that can be done in terms of synthesizing everything that has been accomplished over the past years. And most of that, at least the archaeology accomplished, wouldn't have been accomplished without those laws. We'll have to leave it there. Dr. Bob Austin, thanks for joining us for The Seminole Wars. Well, thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.